0: We pushed them back over tangled wire, through valley and over hill, and ended our part of the Argonne Drive at the village of Binarville. Sergeant Chester J. Westfield, Company L, 368th Infantry Regiment, 92nd Buffalo Division, AEF, September 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 55. MERS Argonne, Buffalo Soldiers at Binarville. Good to be back here in pre-recorded MP3 format. So, let's knock out our administrative announcements. Big shout-outs to Stephen and Brian, our latest patrons on Patreon. Thank you so much for signing up. As patrons on Patreon, you will have early access to all new episodes as well as transcripts and bibliographies for those episodes. Patrons also have other perks, such as submitting a question that I'll research and answer to the best of my ability. You will also have the possibility of naming a battle you'd like to hear covered on the show. If this sounds interesting to you, check us out on www.patreon.com backslash Battles of the First World War podcast. Patronage of the BFWWP can begin with as little as a dollar per episode, and it is greatly appreciated. Of course, if you are unable to help financially, no worries at all. You can also greatly help the podcast by reviewing it on iTunes. To everyone who has submitted a simple, starred review, thank you so much. To everyone who has submitted a written review, thank you so very much. These reviews really help the podcast become more visible in the iTunes world, which connects us with a larger audience. You can leave a starred review right through your iPhone by scrolling down to the bottom of the podcast page to where the prompt can be located. All right, so let's get back to the front. We started the American led Mers Argonne Offensive on the 26th of September, 1918, by covering the American First Army's three corps from left to right the first, the fifth, And the Third. We even jumped across the Meuse to follow the actions of the French 17th Corps, which was also under General John J. Pershing's control. So now we're going to traverse the front back west to the left flank of the First Corps, beyond the western edge of the Argonne Forest. West of the Argonne is the French region of Champagne where the French 4th Army, under the one-armed General Henri Gouraud, was operating. To recap General Pershing's plan, the AEF 1st Army was to smash through the three main German defense lines in the Meuse Valley and specifically to push up through the valley of the River Aire on the Argonne's eastern edge. While 1st Corps bowled its way through both the Argonne and the adjacent Aire Valley, the French 4th Army would be ramming its own way up the River En Valley on the Argonne's western edge. Together, the American and the French armies were to cut off the Argonne Forest and meet at the village of Grand Pre, which sits at the northern tip of the Forbidding Woods. On the French 4th Army's right flank, on the 26th of September 1918, was the African-American 368th Infantry Regiment, recently made a part of the Groupe mont a hybrid French-American provisional brigade battle group under the command of a French colonel by the same name. The Groupe Mont-Durande was made up of the American 368th and the French 11th Corrassier, a dismounted French cavalry unit. Together, These two units were to advance under the French 4th Army's orders while maintaining contact with the leftmost American unit in the Argonne, that being the 308th Infantry of the 77th Division. The 368th Infantry Regiment was part of the AEF's 92nd Buffalo Soldiers Division one of two segregated African-American infantry divisions created by the United States Army for the war effort. To discuss how the 368th came under French command, how it would perform on the battlefield, and how it would be perceived after the war, we need to go back to the beginning. When the United States entered the First World War on the 6th of April 1917, Many African Americans were indifferent to the whole thing. They felt the war was a European affair and had little to do with them and their lives directly. Some African Americans heard Woodrow Wilson's calls to make the world safe for democracy and saw nothing but a racist hypocrite talking out of both sides of his mouth. Wilson's presidency had seen the pernicious rollback of civil rights and social advances made by black Americans since the end of the bloody Civil War. Woodrow Wilson was a progressive leader, but only for whites. Other leaders in the African-American community, however, saw the war as an opportunity for service with distinction and the chance to, quote, accelerate racial progress, unquote, as author and Dr. Nina Myajkij writes in her book Loyalty in Time of Trial. Black leaders like W.E.B. Du Bois pushed for um, African Americans to put their civil rights struggle on the back burner for the duration of the war. It was time to show how the black community in the United States was just as patriotic as the white and new immigrant communities were. And when African Americans served with honor and fidelity, the United States would be forced to confront its racist past and see its black citizens as equals. In the end, government bureaucracy won the argument. A month after the declaration of war, the draft was put into place, and all eligible men, white or black, were required to appear before their local draft boards. 2,200,000 African Americans did so. Of these... 370,000 were selected for military service. Most of the drafted men called into service would be used for stevedore and other labor battalions. Historically, the United States government and the Army had been against arming its black citizens. At the time of the war, the racist Jim Crow laws were in full effect throughout the American South, and the Army itself was going to do nothing to go against those laws. The U.S. Army during World War I was an army that saw waves of immigrants sign up to defend their new homeland. And so it would be an army that would have over 40 languages spoken in its ranks. It would be a reflection of its country, the melting pot, diverse in peoples, cultures, and tongues. But it would also be racist. The United States Army eventually created two segregated divisions, the 92nd and the 93rd, at the command of Secretary of War Newton Baker. The men trained for the American Expeditionary Forces received poor training almost universally, but the 92nd Division especially so. The men of the division were split into their respective regiments and sent to several different Northern Army camps. Southern men had a big problem at the time with black men training for combat in their home states. Wherever the Buffalo Soldiers were, they were sure to be a minority at all times, in keeping with some irrational fear that black troops might initiate a racial revolt. The division's commander, Major General Charles Bellow, would not see his division completely assembled for active operations until they reached France. He would know of his regiment's training only through the occasional telephone call or letters exchanged with his brigade commanders. The 92nd and 93rd Divisions would have junior grade officers, the lieutenants and captains, who were African American. This was a first for the Army. These new officers would have strict limitations that would tighten as the war progressed, with opportunities for promotion restricted to such a point that black officers saw largely no hope of promotion or advancement at all. Battalion and regimental commands went to white officers. Many white officers held the racist views of the time, and saw the officers as inadequate simply because of the color of their skin. Major General Bellow believed that African Americans in general must simply accept their position as second-class citizens in their country. As he was given command of one of the two segregated divisions, however, and the performance of the division would be a reflection of his leadership, he had to do everything he could to make his men succeed. Others would be more malicious. Colonel Alan Greer, the chief of staff of the 92nd Division, would simply spread lies, half-truths, and rumors to undercut the reputation of the men under his command. It went further up the chain of command as well. Lieutenant General Robert Lee Bullard, currently commanding the 3rd Corps, had been raised in the post-Civil War South and most certainly held the views of that time. Poor Negroes, they are hopelessly inferior, he wrote in his diary. Robert Lee Bullard saw any opportunity for the advancement of African Americans as wrong. All this constructive equality, he wrote, I regard it as an injustice. It is not real. Bullard would be one of the loudest naysayers of the 92nd after the Binarville operations. Even General Pershing held similar views. After the division's arrival and training in France under French officers, he was disappointed with what he saw. Rather than point to his own army's inadequate training program, he pointed right at the men themselves and blamed them for, quote, lower capacity, unquote, and for being uneducated. Pershing later said, quote, It would have been much wiser to have followed the long experience of our regular army and provided these colored units with selected white officers. Unquote. As a result of all this, training was abysmal for the men of the 92nd, even compared against the AEF's abysmal training programs in 1917 and 1918. Northern army camps saw their training schedules frequently interrupted by brutally cold weather. The enforced dismemberment of the 92nd ensured that no brigade level exercises could take place when there was training. And of course, even if there had been training at this level, there was no equipment available. Machine gun battalions and field artillerymen trained without machine guns or artillery. There was no equipment available. It would all have to be supplied by the French and British. Consequently, most of these new Buffalo soldiers spent a lot of time square bashing or practicing how to march. Marching, though, was not a key skill needed for the horrific trench warfare of the Western Front. Buffalo soldiers completed their training, such as it was, by the spring of 1918. The Germans had started their Kaiserschlacht offensives by then, and the Allies were desperate for American soldiers. The 92nd Division began shipping its men over the Atlantic in the second half of June, and by July, assembled its full ranks in France. General Pershing was adamant, even stubborn, about maintaining the independence of the American Expeditionary Forces. Remember episode 48, when Pershing almost knocked out Marshal Foch, for demanding that American troops be dispersed amongst the French and British. Pershing offered the 92nd Division to the British, who refused to train them. This angered the American commander, who said they were trained and ready to go, which was a lie, clearly. Pershing turned to the French, who were more accepting of quote-unquote colored troops, and agreed to take them under their command the 92nd Division marched its men, still without equipment, to the Vosges Front. There, they were given more poor training by the French 87th Division d'Infanterie, unfortunately. In August, the French made the training go live by moving the Buffalo Soldiers into the front line near Saint-Dié, east of the Lorraine Plateau and in the foothills of the Vosges Range. There, the men replaced the American 5th Division, which had just upset the live-and-let-live live rule of this formerly quiet sector by attacking the Germans and creating a salient around the small village of Frappel. The war became real as soon as the men took over from their white counterparts in the 5th Division. The Red Diamond Division had wrenched Frappel from the Germans, and now the Germans wanted it back. Immediately, the Buffalo soldiers faced enemy counterattacks shelling, and gas as they manned the front-line trenches. Engineers of the 317th Engineer's Battalion went to work under fire, rebuilding the trench systems. The division took its first casualties. The men faced not only the very physical threats of bullets, shells, and gas, but other threats as well. Behind the lines, the AEF ensured that the movement of black soldiers was severely restricted. Bigoted officers like Colonel Alan Greer portrayed African-American soldiers as potential rapists who needed to be strictly controlled. When French civilians were found enjoying the company of the men of the 92nd Division in villages behind the lines, the United States Army requested to French officials that they conform to the American practices of treating African-Americans as second-class citizens. There were those in the AEF leadership who wanted Jim Crow to come overseas to France. Black soldiers could be arrested by military authorities at any moment for practically any reason, and black officers were always under threat of accusations of being unfit for command or of cowardice before the enemy. Never mind that these were soldiers who had been half-trained at best and were wholly new to warfare. The goal was for Jim Crow to be an ever-present threat to these men and for them to know that at any moment they could be destroyed with no recourse. Once the Germans figured out they were facing African Americans in Frappelle, they tried psychological warfare as well by dropping leaflets over their lines. Quote, Hello, boys. What are you doing over here? Fighting the Germans? Why? Have they ever done you any harm? Of course, some white folks and the lying English-American papers told you that the Germans ought to be wiped out for the sake of humanity and democracy. What is democracy? Personal freedom. All citizens enjoying the same rights socially and before the law. Do you enjoy the same rights as the white people do in America, the land of freedom and democracy? Or are you not rather treated over there as second-class citizens? Can you get into a restaurant where white people dine? Can you get a seat in a theater where white people sit? Can you get a seat or berth in a railroad car? Or can you even ride in the South in the same streetcar with the white people? And how about the law? Is lynching and the most horrible crimes connected therewith, a lawful proceeding in a democratic country? Now, all this is entirely different in Germany, where they do like colored people, where they treat them as gentlemen and as white men. And quite a number of colored people have fine positions in business in Berlin and other German cities. Why then fight the Germans only for the benefit of the Wall Street robbers and to protect the millions that they have loaned to the English "'French, and Italians. "'You have been made the tool "'of the egoistic and rapacious rich in America, "'and there is nothing in the whole game for you "'but broken bones, horrible wounds, "'spoiled health, or death. "'No satisfaction whatever "'will get you out of this unjust war. "'You have never seen Germany, "'so you are fools if you allow people to make you hate us. "'Come over and see for yourself.' Let those who do the fighting, who make the profit out of this war, don't allow them to use you as cannon fodder. To carry a gun in this service is not an honor, but a shame. Throw it away and come over to the German lines. You will find friends who will help you." Barbeau and Henri, in their book The Unknown Soldiers, African-American Troops in World War I, note that there were, quote, no significant number of desertions, unquote. Despite all of this, the Buffalo soldiers did their job as well as any other American that summer. For the next four weeks, the 365th and 366th Infantry Regiments sent out over a dozen patrols a day into no man's land, all while facing the Germans' own patrols and counterattacks. Personal accounts are few, but we do know that during this time, a Lieutenant Aaron Fisher and seven of his soldiers of E. Company 366th Infantry would be awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for bravery in beating back a German raid on the night of 4 September 1918. Brigadier General Barnum, commander of the 183rd Brigade, under which the 365th, and 366th regiments served, later remarked that, quote, conduct of the officers and men were so gratifying to me that I intended to express to them my appreciation of their fine conduct. Unquote. These were fine words. The only problem was that the good general never followed through with an official report or commendation. Such an action may have been small, but it could have helped in maintaining or even boosting morale amongst the men in Barnum's ranks. In the middle of September, the 92nd Division was reassigned to the AEF 1st Army and hurriedly sent up to the Meuse-Argonne Front. The urgency was so great that the troops had no time to rest or even clean themselves up. Night marches along unknown and busy roads led to understandable confusion. Even so, Major Warner Ross of the 365th Infantry had to prove to his chain of command that his soldiers marched as quickly as they could without any lollygagging. Once in the Argonne Sector, the 368th Infantry Regiment, commanded by Colonel Fred Brown, was selected to be part of the Groupement de Ronde. As part of the group, the 368th would fill an 800 meter wide gap in the front line between the French 4th Army and the American 1st Army. Authors Barbeau and Henri note that the choices of the 92nd division and the 368th in particular for the assignment were odd ones, as these were very inexperienced units being given a rather complex job. The choice of the 92nd and the 368th to be assigned to the french fourth army may have just been an expedient one the 368th itself was likely chosen as the 365th and 367th regiments had just come out of the line both the 92nd and the 368th were experienced only as far as patrolling and some combat and repelling german raids but remember that General Pershing had assigned the raw 79th Division the task of taking Montfaucon, the biggest nut in the German line the Americans needed to crack right away. With this in mind, sending the 368th to the Groupement Durand isn't all that strange. What is not strange, but a symptom of rushed thinking and judgment is that the 368th was sent into its part of the front line just a couple of days before the American attack began? This was likely just the rushed nature of American planning and Pershing's drive to maintain operational security. Parts of the 368th got into their trenches just hours before the guns went off on the 25th of September. To their right, was the U.S. 1st Battalion, 308th Infantry, commanded by Major Charles Whittlesey, and to their left were the French 11th Coyossiers. Just north of the village of Vienne-le-Château and the adjacent hamlet of La Rézée, the front that the 368th took over was an area badly cut up after four years of brutal trench warfare. This was the front line, the Buffalo soldiers faced three German trenches ahead of them. The first was called Finland Trench. The second was Tirpitz Trench. Beyond it was the Vallée du Moreau, and on the north side of the valley was the German Third Trench, called Dromedary. About a half mile or so north of Dromedary Trench lay the shell pocked village of Binarville. In between these trench lines lay interconnected trenches that meandered through the battlefield. Some of these trench lines connected the opposing armies, and as a result, one side or the other had stuffed them full of barbed wire or chevaux de frise, those old frames of wood with rows of long wooden spikes. The land was, of course, heavily shell cratered, and on the surface between the holes and abandoned trenches in no man's land lay more barbed wire, Cheval de Frise and other war waste from years of industrialized destruction. The objectives of the 368th for its advance on the 26th of September were several and vague. They were to maintain contact with the Germans once they were over the top, and to maintain contact with the 11th Coraciere on their left, and Major Whittlesey's battalion on their right. They were to advance if possible and pursue the enemy with the French courassiers. If possible, they were to take Binarville. Arriving in the front line so late meant that the officers of the 368th had no time to reconnoiter the ground they would advance over, nor was there any time to patrol. There were no maps either. The regiment deployed its 2nd Battalion for the attack. 1st and 3rd battalions were in reserve. The men had heavy machine guns available, but the nature of the ground limited their range to 20 yards. There were no shell-shot, light machine guns, no Stokes mortars, no rifle grenades, no heavy wire cutters like those used by the veteran French. The 368th would have to make do. The attack started from the road that ran from Vienne-le-Château to Binarville. And historian Robert Farrell wrote that it kicked off with a, quote, appearance of order, no confusion, unquote. It was dangerous to start the assault on the German line from the road, as the enemy had long since zeroed in on it with artillery. But the ground was so bad and the men inexperienced that the risk was deemed as justified. Things quickly broke down into chaos. The battalion advanced in small groups as mass movement wasn't possible through the broken landscape. 2nd Battalion under Major Max Elser went to the right and split into two groups at his command. Elser led half of his battalion forward while the other half stayed behind. The Major left no instructions for his headquarters and for communications he depended on runners. Now remember that these men had just arrived on scene and did not know the ground. Advancing over whatever open paths they could find in no man's land, the Buffalo soldiers reached the Tirpitz Trench late in the afternoon. And once there, the Germans in the Aragon opened up on them with machine guns. Here, the 500 or so men who had advanced with Major Elser disintegrated. Men and officers went to ground and stayed there. Elser reorganized a half of the battalion he had with him as German artillery began ranging in on them. He had no contact with the other half of his battalion he had left behind, no contact with his headquarters element, and no contact with Colonel Brown further back. With no maps to tell him exactly where he was, Elsa pulled his men back to the Finland trench. Not everyone got the message and all the confusion and noise, and three platoons worth of men stayed in Terpitt's trench for the night. The day ended with territory gains that could only be measured in meters. Curiously, Some claimed that orders to withdraw had been provided by runners sent from the rear. Efforts to confirm this went nowhere. Elser had made several tactical errors. First, he'd split up his battalion. No doubt that a battalion of about a thousand men is hard to control. But hey, that's why a good leader delegates. He had also made himself reliant on runners and left his headquarters with no orders or guidance. Colonel Brown was apparently nowhere to be found either. Unfortunately, these two officers had a lot to do with the bad reputation their division was about to be tarred with. Early on the 27th, new orders came down from the Gruppe Monde de Ronde. The 368th was to go on the attack with 3rd and 2nd battalions. The regiment's front would narrow as it advanced towards Binavie, and so it was to cut through the three German trenches and keep pushing past the village. Colonel Brown, now present, gave the order verbally to his battalion commanders. Both Major Max Elser and Major Norris, the 3rd Battalion commander, roadblocked on the orders. After Colonel Brown cajoled them into accepting their new mission, they then went passive-aggressive and took forever to get their men ready for the new attack. This time... Brown moved his combat command post closer to the front to monitor events. 2nd Battalion shrank its footage and attacked over the same ground as the day before. The soldiers here made no progress and wound up returning to Finland Trench, which was formerly the German front line. 3rd Battalion attacked after spreading itself to cover part of 2nd Battalion's front, where 2nd Battalion's Major Elser was a man given to indecision in the heat of the moment as he weighed the possibilities around him. 3rd Battalion's Major Benjamin Norris was a know-it-all, historian Robert Farrell's own words, who once told one of his captains, quote, I am being paid to think for you. Join your company, unquote. Major Norris did lead from the front, though. He went forward over the top with a recon group that scouted the best way for the rest of the battalion. By nightfall, his troops were in Tirpitz Trench, a gain of maybe 500 meters through shell-shattered terrain. Norris was unable to link up with Elser's troops, and so he stayed where he was through the night with open flanks. The realization that they were out in no man's land alone led Norris's I company to fall back without orders. While he desperately rallied them back to the front, his K Company began to disintegrate from panic as well. "'This is the damnedest balled-up thing i ever seen,' Captain Green of I Company later remarked. On the 28th, the two battalions were ordered to resume the attack again, despite the clear signs that neither unit was handling itself well in the field. The 2nd Battalion went forward only to fall apart completely.' the men began falling back from the front line. They would not do as ordered. Major Elser, after two impossibly stressful days without any sleep, suffered a nervous breakdown. At noon, the 3rd Battalion made its way up to Dromedary Trench, the 3rd German Trench, where it was pounded by a heavy enemy artillery barrage. Major Norris's troops started retreating, but he managed to regroup them and get them back on the front line. Six hours later, the troops began panicking again, and they began moving towards rear areas. Norris was forced to pull back to Turpett's Trench and establish a thin line of men to defend it. Second and third battalions were out. They had completely collapsed. Colonel Brown called up his remaining first battalion to plug the dangerous gap in the line. Major John Merrill brought up his battalion only after his demands for equipment were largely met on the morning of the 29th of September. Merrill was a career military man with service in the Philippines and in Persia, of all places. He had even served briefly in the British Indian Army until he came home to join the AEF. As Merrill's battalion marched closer to the front, some of his soldiers broke ranks due to nearby incoming artillery fire. Merrill grabbed them and began literally punching his soldiers in the that were back in ranks. He'd learned such brutality within the Indian Army and had no problem with it. He got his men to take the part of the line where 2nd Battalion had been, and on their left, the French 9th Creossier stepped in to cover 3rd Battalion's front. It was now September 30th, and the 368th Infantry had made zero progress with their several objectives from the 26th. Major Merrill went out into the battlefield early that morning and found it largely empty of enemy. He came back and wrote a report to Colonel Brown, where he explained that both units on either side of him had advanced and consequently left him in a bowl. Merrill was going to advance. He would later tell his regimental commander, quote, I am not going to sit here uselessly, orders or no orders. Unquote. On his right, the 308th Infantry, 77th Division, continued pushing through the Argonne. On his left, the French 9th Cruisers were attacking towards Binarville, the village that Merrill's regiment was supposed to have reconquered. In the early afternoon, he launched his battalion toward the village after instructing his men that they were expected to beat the French to it. Merrill still faced tottering platoons and companies that hesitated to advance. He went so far with one unit as to shoot rounds over their heads. They started moving as a result. The French moved across the battlefield and liberated Biennardville ahead of the Americans. Twenty minutes after they entered the village, Buffalo Soldiers of the 1st Battalion, 368th Infantry, made themselves visible as they approached. While the staff of Groupement mont de were unhappy at Merrill's making things up as he went along, the Frenchmen on the ground were happy to see the black American soldiers. Shortly after bien was captured, the Germans started shelling it, forcing the Poilus and the Doughboys to pull back out of it. The Germans, though, wouldn't be making any moves to retake it. They seem strangely absent from this whole episode. Merrill pulled his men out of the field at 4 a.m. the next morning, the 1st of October. The 368th was pulled from the front line. It had suffered 280 men killed, wounded, gassed, and missing. Within days, it was removed from the Argonne sector entirely and shipped off to the Marbache sector in the Wauvre. The rest of the 92nd Division went with it. The 92nd left with a shattered reputation that would take decades to rebuild. The judgment of the moment, as Robert Farrell called it, remained fixed in place in the AEF's staff and command memories. That judgment was that the division as a whole, based solely on the performance of the Green 368th Infantry, was a failure word spread quickly through the AEF and it sounded as if some people wanted them to have failed. Quote, one battalion of the 92nd Midnight Division has been tried in the line and they didn't stick. Labor for them hereafter, wrote surgeon Harvey Cushing less than a week later from the ruins of ferry devant van The Midnight comment. Why? Why did that have to get put in there? The 368th hadn't completely failed, however. Yes, the 2nd and 3rd Battalions had disintegrated catastrophically in combat due to the extraordinary but not unexpected combination of poor training, little experience, bad ground, and bad leadership. The 1st Battalion had helped take Binarville and regained contact with the units on either flank. In the after-action reports and the investigations into the battlefield conduct of the 92nd that would come after the war, black soldiers were blamed for it all. Major Norris of 3rd Battalion called his soldiers cowards, despite eyewitness accounts that at one point in the fighting, Norris himself was found hiding in a shell hole. Major Merrill of the 1st Battalion later provided a long-written opinion that drew straight from phrenology, the pseudoscience of the 19th century used as cover for racist beliefs. Colonel Fred Brown, the commander of the 368th, later wrote a long report titled The Inefficiency of Negro Officers, where he said that all the rumors spread by white officers were true. He didn't blame his battalion commanders, who were poor leaders, but white. Colonel Greer, chief of staff to a unit he hated, wrote in what doubtless was malicious glee. They failed in all their missions, laid down and snaked to the rear until they were withdrawn. Major General Ballot, commander of the 92nd, and never a strong leader himself, now jumped in with everyone else and heaped abuse on his men. They had failed because of the color of their skin. He recommended the expulsion of some 20 officers immediately with no investigation or even courts-martial. All of the officers were incompetent, Ballow claimed, and if there were an investigation, they would all just cover for each other anyway. The ease with which a white officer could potentially destroy a black man's life was astounding. Lieutenant General Bullard of the 3rd Corps went ahead and called the entire division a failure, spreading further ill will towards the division. Five black officers of the 92nd were later court-martialed, convicted, and sentenced to death. Secretary of War Newton Baker stepped in and exonerated these men after a thorough investigation that showed the 368th and the 92nd as a whole were woefully undertrained and that there was good evidence showing that at some point, orders to withdraw had been issued by someone. Had Baker himself not stepped in, however, those men could have potentially been put to death for the failures of their leaders. The story of the 368th Infantry at Binarville is an ugly episode in the Murs argonne offensive that put on display the cancerous racism attached to the American psyche. The 92nd Division was shunted off to another part of the front ignominiously, but its story wasn't yet over. The Buffalo Soldiers will see combat again, and their performance, when taken into context of their past experiences and the performance of other divisions around them, will go a long way towards showing that the division was in no way a failure. All right, so... We're going to leave the 92nd there for now. The plan is to revisit them later in a place called Bois Frejaux. Next time, though, we're going back into 1st Corps' area to update what has been happening there after the first day of the big offensive. Unfortunately, we will be watching another American division collapsing on the battlefield. Questions, comments, or concerns? Please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or get at me on the Twitter at at WW1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos, and check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.